Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. For millions of people around the world, the cross is the central symbol that represents everything that matters in our faith. It is the the enduring emblem of our freedom. You and I look at the cross and we remember what it required for us to live free. There is no other event. It is unparalleled in the history of humankind. An event in which divinity and humanity intersect in a moment that's described by the writer of Hebrews as the consummation of the age. That moment in history and space and time when Christ died once for all people, once for all sin, once for all time. All people, past, present, and future. He died once for all sin, past, present, or future. And he died once for all time, past, present, and future. There is a verse that we will be chasing throughout the course of this brand new series today that is at the heart of what it is that makes the cross mean anything. And it's from Colossians 1. Hear these words. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. When you look at the cross, what do you see? When you look at the cross, what do you remember? When you look at the cross, what do you anticipate? Because for millions of Christians who call him by name, we understand that the cross has done something that has provided an eternal life for any and all who would believe from this moment forward into eternity. But what I want to suggest to you over the course of these next 10 weeks, I I cannot emphasize it enough. It is absolutely true that the cross of Jesus provides eternal life after after death, after we die. That is fantastically true. But the cross is not simply about what happens after we die. More than simply the assurance of eternal life after death, the cross of Jesus is a clarion call to a way of life before death. We are to live as if we are shaped by what has happened on the cross. 
The cross was the culminating event that gathered everything he ever said and everything he ever did in his earthly life and puts it on display in the cross. We often think of the cross of Jesus as this thing that happened on a hill far away. But in all reality, the, what happened on the cross was the cumulative effect of everything that Jesus had been up to his whole life. When you pay attention to what he said and pay attention to what he did, he was constantly emptying out his life, laying down his pride, modeling for his disciples to choose not the best seat at the table, but the worst. Not to seek to be first, but to seek to be last. Everything that he did by reaching out to the edges of society and bringing in from the margins those who are marginalized and bringing them into the very center of the consciousness of the power systems of his day was an attempt to say, I see the suffering. And I am present with the suffering. And any life that is to matter is a life that is expressed through suffering love. A willingness to put down pride and take up a towel. And everything you and I see and celebrate about the cross is that which he was working toward his whole life. And those of us who choose to follow him must live cross-focused, cross-centered, cross-shaped lives. That's what this word means. Cruciform is simply a word that means cross-shaped. Jesus himself said, look, if anybody wants to be my followers, if any wish to be my disciples, let them deny themselves, take up their cross and follow. To follow him in the way of the cross. What would it look like to live a cross shaped life what would it look like to to live cross-shaped marriages to raise cross-shaped children to lead cross-shaped businesses to make cross-shaped peace with the enemy who has reviled you and spoken all manner of evil against you because if you and I are to follow the one whose life was slain for us upon the cross, then we are to live as if that event changed everything in the way we order our lives. And that's what I want to talk about for the next 10 weeks. How to live cross-shaped lives. And to do so, we're going to do it in an interesting way. Through a study of the book of 1st Corinthians. If you have your Bibles, you may want to turn with me there to 1st Corinthians because 1st Corinthians is a, a book of the Bible, a letter written by Paul that is all about order life in such a way that it is shaped by the cross. And today, to begin that conversation, I got to tell you something about the city of Corinth. So make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, but let me tell you about these people. Because they look familiar. In Corinth, it was a, 
kind of a cosmopolitan center, a, a, a hub of commerce. It was a, a popular city, but it was a highly competitive city. It was you know, cutthroat competition with deep, deep divisions running throughout the city. Corinth was divided politically, divided theologically, divided ideologically, divided racially. Does any of this sound familiar at all? Corinth is home, y'all. In Corinth, there was a high premium placed on wisdom, on Greek philosophy. They're to the west of Athens, Greece, the home of all the great thinkers, right? Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, and, and, and the like. So they placed a high premium on debate, on the ability to take an argument and develop an argument and, and let it have linear flow and sensibility and logic to conclude something that allows you to control some bit of information so that you know how to make sense out of life. And the competition between who can make more sense out of life than whom was rough. Corinth was so image-driven, so uh, image-conscious, that they made, according to one commentator, they made self-promotion and, and public bragging a kind of art form. And he went on to say that was even before you know, Instagram. To make public bragging and self-promotion an art form. In Corinth, there was a temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. And there were a thousand priestesses, a.k.a. a thousand temple prostitutes. And in Corinth, sexuality and sexual, sexual ethics had been so relaxed and there was a kind of boundaryless expression of sexuality that they had taken sexual promiscuity and even deviance in such a way that it normalized. And that normalizing of sexual promiscuity elevated it to a level of worship. In Corinth, they worshipped power and money, greed and sex. Does any of this sound familiar? Corinth is an ancient version of us. And right in the middle of Corinth is a church. And Paul was concerned because this church that was housed in the midst of a culture like that was beginning to change their priorities. In Corinth, he saw in the church in Corinth patterns of behavior in which they were taking on the patterns of Corinth, taking on the patterns of their culture. In fact, in some ways, Paul saw more of Corinth in the church than Paul saw Christ in the church. It's possible, you know, for there to be more culture than cross in a church. Any church at any time in any age, if they fall asleep to the original call to be salt and light in a dark and thirsty world, well, then any church can be enchanted by, enticed by the easy ethic of the culture around them. 
And when we are enticed by the easier ethic of the culture around us, what begins to take shape within us is a way of life that is not cruciform, but crucideformed. A life that resembles nothing of the cross, but everything the cross came to save us from. Now, Paul knew this about the church. And Paul writes this letter to to hold up in front of them the image of the cross. That the crucifixion to the Corinthians, he would write, is the model symbol of everything that we are meant to order our lives after. And he goes on to acknowledge that I recognize it is not easy. And I recognize, Paul would say, that in some ways it actually makes no sense at all. And we pick up his comments in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 18. Listen to these words. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom. But we, we, we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are being called, both to Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Of all the verses that I will read to you and preach from throughout this 10-week series, I want us to base the foundation of this series on verse 22 and 23. Here's what he just said. For Jews demand signs, and Gentiles, or Greeks, desire wisdom. But we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, essentially, Paul is addressing, clearly, two kinds of groups. Two people groups. Two two groups of thinking, right? The Jews and the non-Jews, the Greeks, the Gentiles. But in many ways... What he's really addressing are two mindsets. Because within every one of us, we think like Jews who demand a sign. And we think like Greeks who prefer wisdom. And for both the Jew and the Greek and for everyone in between, it's a stumbling block to think of the cross. If you actually really understood, if we, if we can understand what really is happening in the cross event, we would know that it is foolish. 
I mean, just think about the stumbling block it was for the Jews. The, the Jews looked for signs because that's how God had always demonstrated God's strength. Like with Pharaoh, delivering them from the hand, the grip of Pharaoh. And all through the Hebrew Bible, God is presented as one who delivers with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. Of course, they would look for God's power to be demonstrated in some great act of strength, right? Thunder and fire and smoke, earthquake. I mean, it makes sense. That's how you kind of want a big God who's powerful and mighty, mighty to save, the psalmist sings. And yet this God chooses to be crucified. It's a stumbling block for the Jews because that's not what power looks like. But you and I, in our kind of self-righteousness, hold the Jews at an arm's length and say, how foolish of you. Couldn't you see what it was? But the truth is, you and I don't define power that way either. Even now, think of the heroic in your life. Think of who you admire, who is strong and mighty and, and full of power. The fact is, most of those images that come to mind are images of some mighty act or mighty deed. And certainly not. A broken body of a Galilean carpenter. Yeah. The thing is, I think that you and I have a stumbling block too. Now, just like the Jews, because he didn't come the way he expected. I mean, the scriptures were, were filled with images of God coming to deliver, with militaristic images of messianic hope. Of course, God is going to come and crush the oppressing empire and deliver us and we'll be free because the scriptures say it again and again and again, this is what to expect. He will come as a mighty conquering king. But also in there, in subtle ways, like in Isaiah, there's another image of a suffering servant where divine love is shown through suffering love. Or the image of a Passover lamb, a sacrificial lamb as led to slaughter. But neither the Jews of that day nor you or me this day prefer that kind of image because it just looks weak. That's why it's a stumbling block for them. It's the same reason it's a stumbling block for us. The trouble is if we actually knew the scandal of the cross, it would be a stumbling block for us as well. See, you and I tend to domesticate the cross of Jesus. We have kind of tamed it, house-trained it. This is kind of a calm, docile. We put it on shirts and jewelry and walls and decorations. And this thing that the Hebrew writer said was the consummation of the ages, this cosmic declaration of freedom has become more of an attractive decoration. Our walls, our shirts, our bodies, our jewelry. And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? But I was moved by the true story of a man who went into the jewelry store and he went to buy a cross for his wife and the man said behind the counter well here we have gold crosses and these are silver these are some white gold these have a design on them and this is the price that we're running today for these crosses but if you want one with you know the little guy on it it'll cost you extra yeah. if you want one with a little guy on it it'll cost you extra I think sometimes we have so domesticated what actually happened in that moment that we are anesthetized to it. And until we can be shocked by the scandal of it, then how can we see it as anything other 
and stumbling block. So Tim Costello, a Baptist pastor, was talking about how sometimes we just treat this thing, we mop it up, we shine it up, we polish this idea of the crucifixion as if it was something that happened in church. These were his words, that's what he said. Jesus wasn't crucified between two candlesticks in a cathedral in a sacred place. He was crucified on the rubbish dump outside the city wall. He was crucified in a cosmopolitan, multicultural place where the inscription above him had to be written in Greek, in Hebrew, and in Latin. He was crucified in a place where soldiers gambled, where smut was talked, and where criminals shrieked in agony as they died. The crucifixion in the first century mind was a demonstration made by Rome. It was a statement that Rome was making to any who would put their eyes upon it. Look what happens when you defy the empire. Fleming Rutledge reflected on what the message of the cross was meant to send, the message that was meant to be sent to those who watched those onlookers. Listen to what he said. It's meant to say, these miserable beings that you see before you are not the same species as the rest of us. One of the purposes of pinning the victims up like insects was to invite the gratuitous abuse of all those who passed by. Those crowds understood that their role was to increase the suffering of those being crucified by jeering and mocking them. This whole Good Friday scene ought to summons us to think deeply about the profoundly strange, incongruous, indeed unacceptable nature of a crucified God nailed up between two bandits for the scorn of the passerby. And no one has ever matched this story for the sheer perversity that the, the divine redeemer obscenely displayed, reviled, mocked, spat upon, beaten nearly to death, naked, plagued by insects, covered by dirt and sweat and blood and excrement. Why must the Son of God come to this end? Of course, the Jews saw it as a stumbling block because that's not how you display divine power. That's an ultimate display of human weakness. That's what losers look like. That's what those who have given up and been defeated look like. And Paul, to the Corinthians, says, yeah, that's the whole thing. That this is a different kind of God. A God who chooses to demonstrate divine power through suffering love. And until you and I grasp the scandal of it all, I don't know if we can fully receive it, embrace it, or be embraced by it. Because it's a stumbling block to us, but not only a stumbling block, but also to the Greeks. Well, he used the word foolish. It's foolish. Because the Greeks prided themselves in the capacity to form an articulate argument. It's linear thinking. If I can own this amount of information and articulate it in such a way that demonstrates the flow, the fluid kind of predictable uh, flow of, a, of an argument and debate it in a way that's convincing, well, then my audience can be convinced, and I will have this, this bit of information to control, and I'll be able to make sense out of mysteries in the world. But the cross makes no earthly sense to anything that we have thought to make sense. Just to give you an idea of how upside down 
the crucifixion was all about. So in the, around the, the second century, into the second century, around the year 200, there was a discovery uh, made in 1857 of a, of a, a picture, a graffito, which is the singular form of the word graffiti, so a scratching, a, a drawing, on a guard room in a wall, in a, in a guard room, on Palatine Hill, close to the Circus Maximus in Rome. And this graffiti, this graffito, was called Alexandrinus Graffito. Here's a picture of it. It dates to about the year 200. It's a little obscure in this picture, but if you clean it up just a little bit, here's another look at it. And then with some enhancement, here's another shot. I want you to just let that image sink in for a moment. It's a crucifix. In fact, it's one of the earliest crucifixes that we know of, dating to about the year 200. And it depicts a young boy at the foot of the cross with his hand raised, presumably in worship. Maybe the most disturbing part of the whole scene is it depicts the crucified Lord with the head of an ass and the inscription meant to mock this young boy whose name is Alexaminus. The inscription says, Alexaminus Sebete Theon. Alexaminus worships his God. In the ancient consciousness, both then and the contemporary consciousness of you and me now, it is foolishness to worship a God who would lay down his own life for his own. The image of Christ with the head of an ass was meant to mock this young worshiper who had found in his life a way of life that brought eternal life. And yet you, you and I point to that and say, oh, how blind they must have been. Oh, the Greeks of ancient Corinth. Oh, the Greeks of ancient Rome. Oh, those ancients, they never knew. Well, you and I know, but the trouble is we define wisdom the same way they define wisdom. Not by yieldedness, not by surrender, but by domination, by control. And the fact is, this text speaks to us today because both of these mindsets are in each one of us. When we think about the cross of Christ, if we're really honest about it, It'll cause a stumbling block to us because that's not how the Corinthians defined power and that's not how America defines power. We have in the consciousness of the culture around us a definition that says if you want power, you got to win, you got to push, you got to achieve, you got to succeed, you got to dominate, you got to be in control. There's no other way to be a winner. And yet, the upside down way of the cross, the cruciform way, is to say those who wish to be first must be last and those who wish to save their life must lose their life. And we think that wisdom today is about finding a way to unravel the mysteries of the universe so that we can have this sense of understanding of the way that things work in this world, to make sense of all the mysteries of this world, and yet the cross makes no earthly sense. What the cross does is it turns upside down everything that we thought made sense. May those who 
seek to follow me, take up their cross and follow. It is both a stumbling block and foolishness to say yes to this kind of way unless unless you're awake in the middle of the night and you're looking at the ceiling fan and you can't go back to sleep because you are worried that no one knows how alone and afraid you really are and somehow suddenly you feel the mysterious presence of somebody who has suffered that kind of isolation with you right there in that room. I mean, of course, the cross is going to look like a stumbling block. That's not how you define power, and that's certainly not what wisdom is. That's foolishness, unless you are signing the papers of foreclosure and you're coming to terms over custodial arrangements for a relationship that you thought would never end. Suddenly you find in your divided heart there is one who has never left you and never forsaken you, and he is the one who cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what it feels like to be abandoned. In that moment, well, it makes perfect sense why weakness and suffering and vulnerability was the way of the cross because how else could God convince us that God loves us and is willing to show up wherever we are most broken? This is why we have a suffering God because in our suffering, He shows up to show us what it feels like to be raised from that death. Of course the cross is foolishness and weakness. It looks like a display of absolute defeat until you experience defeat. And you're picking out the casket of someone you never thought you would lose. And then you realize you're in the company of one who has overcome death itself. Suddenly, his weakness is your strength. And Paul says, this is the great mystery. That divine strength is made perfect in weakness. So yeah, the scandal of the cross is that it was not on some hill far away, but it's in the heart of every person who's ever been broken. That divine and human intersection that runs right through your heart where God is splayed out before you with arms wide open ready to embrace you in your suffering in your lostness, in your brokenness and your sin. This is the mystery and the scandal of the cross. And you may be hearing me today saying these things, and you may be curious what it even means to take your first step in the way of the cross. I mean, maybe you're hearing me talk this way, but you have never come to a place where you have yielded long enough to acknowledge that maybe there is a different way, a better way that leads to life. And if that's where you are today, without any judgment or condemnation, I just want to offer some words that could be used as a prayer for you. I mean, whether you're here in the sanctuary or Family Life Center or you're at home, and you feel this conviction that 
that you want to be embraced by this mystery that's bigger than you. We often talk about inviting God into our lives, but that's not how it works. Becoming redeemed, rescued, saved is is about waking up to the reality that we are welcomed in God's life. That we never have been, are not, and will never be absent from the one who has died to prove it. So maybe you, you borrow these words and let it be a prayer for you today. God, I come to the end of myself. Yeah. And I, I've run out of all the ways that I can think of showing strength. I have run out of all the answers that I thought were clever to make sense out of my life. I've run out. But I, I'm beginning to believe that running to the end of me is actually running into the beginning of you. So I humble myself. And I repent. I ask that you forgive me of my sins. Forgive me of my running in a thousand different directions. And take me, Lord, just as I am. I pray that if you will take me, I, I will follow you for the rest of my life. And I will fix my eyes upon your cross so that your cross will shape my way of life. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, if you've prayed that today, maybe you prayed it here in the sanctuary. Maybe you prayed it in the FLC, the Family Life Center, or maybe you prayed it online. You're at home and you're tuning in. I want you to know that it matters and that God hears the cry of our heart. But you need to tell somebody about that. So today I'm going to ask that you do that. When we conclude our service every week, we stand waiting to talk to you. We have one of our pastors here in the, in the sanctuary. We have a pastor in the Family Life Center. And upon the end of our benediction, I want you to come forward so we can take our time, listen to you, and find our next step together. Okay. For now, it's time to scatter. For now, it's time to leave this place empowered by the one who demonstrated power in weakness. If you'll stand to your feet and receive these words of blessing as we leave. Wherever it is that you go from this place, our prayer is that Christ would go before you to prepare your way. May Christ go behind you on the days that you fear and feel like retreating to encourage you one step forward at a time. May Christ go to your right and Christ to your left, abiding closer than even a sister or a brother. May Christ go above you on the days when dark clouds roll in to remind you there is one above the clouds who at the end of the day has the final word. May Christ go beneath you, girding you with confidence and removing all forms of fear. But mostly may Christ go in you, transforming you from the inside out until your hearts beat in rhythm with his. Go in peace.